Hello and welcome to Pod Emperor of Dune. I'm Elaine, a longtime sci-fi fantasy fan reading Frank Herbert's classic science fiction Dune Saga for the very first time. I'm joined by my co-host Alex, who is tackling his first reread. Join our chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the series. As I make wildly incorrect predictions, Alex tries not to give anything away, and together we learn to walk without rhythm. Hello everyone, welcome to Pod Emperor of Dune. I'm Alex here as always with Elaine. Hey guys. Today we're diving into chapters 50 through 52 of Children of Dune. We're going to catch up with Leto as he arrives in Shulok. Then we're going to see a confrontation between Namri and Gurney. And then finally, Leto goes through some interesting changes as many young boys do. Not quite as many young boys do, <laughs> unless there's something about boys that I'm unaware of at this age. <laughs> Some slightly different changes. Just slightly. Yeah, Leto is in Shulok for, like, all of a day. <laughs> <laughs> all right, shall we dive into the first epigraph? Sure, let's do it. Okay, so this is from Kalima, the words of Mwadib, the Shulok commentary. The future of prescience cannot always be locked into the rules of the past. The threads of existence tangle according to many unknown laws. Prescient future insists on its own rules. It will not conform to the ordering of the Zensuni, nor to the ordering of science. Prescience builds a relative integrity. It demands the work of this instant, always warning that you cannot weave every thread into the fabric of the past. So, basically what I'm getting from this is that prescience just doesn't make sense to anyone who's not prescient. Yeah. Basically. I certainly still don't get it. It lives by its own rules. Yeah. It seems like there's a kind of warning that it's not super simple to weave the threads of time together to achieve any particular outcome, but I could just be reading into that, because as I said, I'm not entirely sure how this all works. Mm-hmm. So, whatever. Let's move on. Sure. Okay, so we pick up basically right after the end of the last chapter, where Leto was getting into a thopter with Miris to go back to Shulok. And they arrive. So Muriz himself pilots the Thopter to bring himself, Leto, and his other companion, who has a name, but I forget what it is, and it's not important, to Shulok. Leto is putting a lot of trust in both Muriz and in his vision that he won't be killed, but he doesn't really have a choice and decides to just trust in the greater order of things, as he puts it. Looking down at the massive rock fortress as they approach, Leto is impressed that it has remained a secret with the implication that a great many bribes and deaths have allowed it to stay as such so far. The plant life surrounding it indicates that there is a lot of water here, and some of these plants have been used to build a sort of slum district surrounding the rocks. This is where the lowest of the cast-out are forced to live. So they have a very clearly visually class-segregated setup, I guess. Mm-hmm. Muries lands in front of one of these sad tent-like buildings, which Leto thinks is where his father lives, and where poor Sabiha will live out her punishment, which was unexpected when I was reading for the first time, because I didn't assume that she would be in any way really directly related to Shulok, Mm -hmm. so I wasn't expecting her to, like, immediately show up. Also, it didn't seem like Namri was super mad at her letting Leto escape in the last chapter, where he was kind of just like, oh, well, he almost hypnotized me too, so I didn't really expect her to have some sort of negative repercussion. So to have her suddenly being, like pretty aggressively punished was surprising. Yeah, they went to zero to 60 pretty quick with that, didn't they? And, like, really fast. Like, Leto has spent, what, like, two days traveling? Like, it's It's not like like he's been gone for very long. (laughs) And in all that time, they managed to, like, round her up, have a trial, and, like, 
sell her into death slash slavery at Shulok. I think it's just one of those things where you're supposed to just say, oh, the Fremen and their mysterious ways, and kind of move on from it. Well, I don't want to indict the Fremen as a whole, these particularly shitty Fremen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, as Leto gets out of the Thopter, the people working in the nearby canyons barely luck up in curiosity, so oppressed that they can't muster enough energy to care about any newcomers. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised that the murder cult is also effectively running a slave camp. <laughs> Morals don't seem to be their strong suit. No, not especially. Leto also notices there are big open canots leaching moisture into the air. Standing at the edge of one, Maurice tells him that he stands at the boundary between fish and worm, a phrase Leto had previously used, I believe. Basically, there are a series of these canots with channels of sand between them, each holding a small sandworm captive. Right now, the canots are full of predator fish to keep them free of sand trout, but soon they will remove the fish to attract the sand trout. Leto surmises from all this that Muriz's people are selling both sand trout and small sandworms off-planet, although so far none have survived for very long. Muriz seems stung at the disapproval that must be in Leto's voice, protesting that it was Muad'Dib's idea anyway, and that someday someone will figure out how to make the worms survive off-planet. <laughs> Which seems like a very hand-wavy sort of, like, it'll all be fine. It'll work itself out. Yeah. Leto retorts that this wouldn't happen in 10,000 years and Maurice stares at him with a million questions in his eyes, not least of which is whether Leto truly can see the future. Maurice eventually leads Leto back to the crude tent they had arrived at, in which a small figure with its back to the door crouches over a spice oil lamp. Apparently, a new captive has been sent to care for Wadib's siege, presumably a sarcastic reference to this poor shabby tent. <laughs> Maurice laughs as he says that if she serves well enough, she might keep her water for a time, so... Making a pretty horrible joke of, like, better do a good job being our slave or we'll just murder you for your water. I like Muri's less and less with every passing minute of this encounter. Not that I was particularly favorable towards him to begin with. Muri's mm -hmm. himself acknowledges that he knows that many would consider the taking of water the way that his people do evil, but he basically shrugs it off as not mattering because the people he murders are not true Fremen, so apparently they don't matter. Yeah, apparently they get a pass on that one. Yeah, although I don't really understand how Sabiha wouldn't count as true Fremen because clearly Jakarutu and Shulok are like allies, so I don't know how his logic applies to her unless the fact that she made a minor mistake means that she's no longer Fremen. Like, it's like internally inconsistent in addition to being terrible. I think that is the distinction they're making, though, that she failed in like her extremely important duty and therefore she has become this outcast or whatever it i agree it's silly but outcast of the outcasts mm -hmm. or the cast out or whatever it's just going to show you that like they're ruthless in their intentions you know like their own family they don't care they're you know if they fail in the task they're given they're going to become a slave or whatever her fate ultimately is here yeah i mean to be perfectly honest i bet that if muriz's son suddenly decided he didn't want to do this shit anymore, Muries would just have him murdered anyway, so. Mm -hmm. Seems on par with all that, I guess. So, while Muries is going on about all this, Leto keeps staring at the crouching figure, which has not moved throughout all of this conversation. Muries says that Leto speaks of leading the Fremen, but asks what Leto could lead them in. Leto replies, Kralizek, which takes Muries aback, as this is basically the Fremen apocalypse, the battle at the end of the universe. 
Instead of dealing with his shock like an adult, Miri's turns to the crouching figure and angrily orders it to get them the spice drink, referring to her only as woman. When the woman hesitates, Leto tells her to do what Miri says, addressing her as Sabiha, so revealing who the crouching figure is. She jumps up and whirls to face him, unable to stop staring, so I don't know if she didn't realize that Leto was here until he just spoke, because previously she hadn't been facing him, and maybe she didn't know that Leto was going to be coming here. I mean, how could she? Mm-hmm. So she must be, like, shocked and also furious because it's his fault that she's here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably a mix of shock that it's him and that he happened to know it was her, just even though she's kind of, like, shrouded and unmoving on the ground at that point. Yeah, I mean, I presume he could recognize her from the back. Although she might not know that. But he's had, like, visions of entire lifetimes with her and shit, so mm-hmm. <laughs> he probably knows what she looks like pretty well. Miriam is surprised that Leto addresses her by name, asking how Leto knows her, and Leto explains that she is Damri's niece and that Jakarutu must have expelled her for offending them, presumably for letting Leto escape. Cool, they assign a teenager to watch over a super powerful god figure, and then they, including her own family, basically ship her off to slavery when he oh-so-surprisingly overpowers her. <laughs> like, I still can't get over that that was the response. And that it happened so quickly. Like, I really am just floored by that. Yeah, and it's got to be really disheartening just to have your own family, like, throw you out like that. Mm-hmm. And throw you to a slave camp, basically. Yeah. It's pretty horrible. Very cool people, these desert Fremen. I feel like the introduction of the Fremen originally was sort of, like, telling you that they're, like, a really hardened people that will make sacrifices and things like that, but this group is just particularly that plus a million with all these other things thrown on top of them. Yeah, so, like, the Fremen definitely had some weird and shitty traditions. Like, we talked about the fact that women just get passed off to new husbands if their husband is killed, and, like, definitely some, like, messed up gender politics. But at the same time, there was at least some underlying honor code that it seemed like they followed. Mm -hmm. And these people have just kind of thrown it out the window and are like, we will make rules that benefit those of us in power and fuck everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're definitely like a hardline, lawful evil type organization. Yeah. I don't even know if I consider them lawful evil. Because I well, feel like... they follow the... their own rules, but they do but have But I feel like they, like, define. arbitrarily decide which rules they need to follow and which ones they don't. Of their own rules, though? Or just of, like, the broader... Well, so this is more of a rules. point that's raised in the beginning of the third chapter, I think. But Leto observes how they, like, are really hardline about being traditional with certain things, but then they're totally fine using, like, modern spice harvesting equipment. So they're like, oh, well, we have to hew to tradition for these things, but we need spice, so we'll make an allowance for these modern pieces of equipment, like... For traditional things, yes, I would agree with that, but just generally around, like, the laws of their organization, whatever it is, they're, like, holding things strictly to the letter. Like, Sabiha getting thrown off. I mean, I'm assuming that's probably part of their rules and regulations, right? You betrayed the family or you failed the family, so you have to go off and... Well, it sounds like whatever. they had some kind of trial. We'll get to that in a second. Um, so it's it sounds like there was a decision mm-hmm. that was made. It wasn't just, like, an automatic thing. I don't know. Regardless, I think lawful or neutral or somewhere in between they're These certainly people evil yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i don't think we're in disagreement about that side of the spectrum at all <laughs> anyway 
So Leto tells her to go get the drinks, and she runs away, apparently unable to continue standing there in the tent and facing him. Miri says she won't go very far, and he seems surprised that she's Namri's kin. So maybe even he is kind of shocked that Namri's been so heartless. Mm-hmm. He asks what she had done to offend Jakarutu, and Leto tells Miri's that she let him escape. Notably, he doesn't explain that he hypnotized her. <laughs> Makes it seem like she was just incompetent. He follows her outside, where she stands at the edge of the canot, looking down into the water. Leto states that she hates him, and she doesn't disagree, as she correctly blames him for what has happened to her. He shamed her, and her people held a sort of trial called an Isnod and sent her here to die, to lose her water, all because of Leto. So, like, she's in slave status now, but that could be revoked at any time, and they could just murder her for water, and it would be fine. Yeah. So, like, she's just in, like, the worst possible position. Mm-hmm. All because Leto, who in some lifetimes loved and married her or whatever, I feel like maybe he could have executed his escape on Namri's watch and fucked Namri over rather than Sabiha, who, like, hadn't really done anything to him. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it just wasn't an option. Yeah, possibly. He probably just had to do it the way he did. I do wonder how much of this he foresaw. Like, did he see the consequences it would have for her? Because it seems pretty heartless for someone that you have, like, at least some degree of feelings towards, right? Well, hey, it's all about the golden path. You gotta make the golden path happen. Well, certainly, but I don't know. I feel like there was probably a way to escape that didn't involve fucking her over. I don't know. Leto doesn't seem like the kind of person who would be needlessly cruel. Like, I feel like if he had options, he would take the option that would be the least cruel option. Yeah, but there was no consideration of the effect that it might have on Sabiha, so I do wonder if he didn't foresee it as a consequence, mm-hmm. or if he just was like, well, sacrifices have to be made. Yeah, well, we there's do no know, thought about that. Yeah, we do know there's blind spots and prescience anyway, from what we've seen historically, so yeah. it's definitely possible that he missed some points here. And he is, I mean, he's, what, nine years old? So it's not like he has the experience that Paul had with prescience. Not that Paul made great use of it himself, to be perfectly honest. Anyway. Again, though, blind spots. Yeah. I I just still don't understand, like, how it works, and it really does seem to change based on the needs of the plot, so, like, I don't even want to get into <laughs> exactly the mechanisms of how it works and blind spots and who can see what. Anyway, Miri's overhears Sabiha's little rant here. And he laughs, saying that the spirit river of Shulok has many tributaries. I'm not entirely sure what this is supposed to mean, though. Just that Jakarutu and Shulok are allies, and that Sabiha being here is like an unexpected connection? I guess. I don't know. I was a bit confused by what that was supposed to mean. Leto's reply is also kind of confusing. He initially says that his water also flows in Miriz's veins, I guess based on that weird blood-drinking thing from the last chapter. Mm Mm-hmm. And that this is direct and not a tributary. Then he says that Sabiha is the fate of my vision and I follow her. And that he came to Shulok to find his future. Miri's at least seems to understand part of this, that Leto and Sabiha are supposed to get together. And he laughs at the idea, probably because of the age difference. Leto reprimands him that it will not occur as either of them might believe. And cautions Miri's by saying, I have found the footprints of my worm. As he speaks, his eyes fill with tears, which Sabiha points out in wonder, because, of course, it's extremely unusual for Fremen to cry, as it's a waste of water. 
Miri seems deeply uncomfortable and pulls his hood over his eyes. Leto warns Miri's to go and pray for Kralizek, and he promises that it will come. So honestly, this whole last bit at the end of the chapter, I don't know what is happening. Like, I don't know what Leto means by any of this or why he's crying. Mm-hmm. Do you? Um, I mean, I could... Unless he's just crying at, like, what he did to Sabiha and, like, maybe he knows she's gonna die as a result. Like, I don't know. I'm very confused. I mean, yeah, it, it could be that. It could be some sort of foreshadowing, just that, you know, his actions will have consequences that he may not be able to control, and maybe some of this is sort of that realization that, you know, she has had this unfortunate consequence that was related to his actions, and that... That's going to happen on a grander scale yeah. as he pursues his path. Yeah, that, that could happen on a grander scale. There could be other unforeseen consequences of his actions, but he knows that, or at least he believes that the golden path is something that he needs to follow for the greater good, and there will be consequences, and he will feel guilty for them, but he's going to have to do it anyway. So maybe it's sort of that realization settling in. Yeah. I didn't quite understand what was trying to be said here. He keeps, like, telling people that he's going to end up with Sabiha, but then actively tries to make that not happen. <laughs> and by the end of these three chapters, I'm pretty sure it's not going to happen. So I don't know why he keeps telling people about it. Yeah, I'm not sure. Like, hey, we're going to bang in the future, except we're actually not. <laughs> okay. What? I don't know. I am confused about this whole thing. He also, and we'll get into this in the third chapter we're going to talk about, but, like, his opinions of Sabiha seem to change, like, every two seconds. <laughs> like, whether he's, like, deeply regretful that they won't get to share some life together, or whether he thinks she's, like, a pathetic, lowly human. Like, I don't know what his actual opinions of her are. Or whether he actually cares about what happens to her. I don't know. Anyway, let's move on to the next chapter where we switch over to what's going on in Jakarutu now that both Leto and Sabiha are gone. Okay, so this epigraph is from Benny Gesserit Private Reports, folio 800881. Fremen's speech implies great concision, a precise sense of expression. It is immersed in the illusion of absolutes. Its assumptions are a fertile ground for absolutist religions. Furthermore, Fremen are fond of moralizing. They confront the terrifying instability of all things with institutionalized statements. They say, We know there is no summa of all attainable knowledge. That is the preserve of God. But whatever men can learn, men can contain. Out of this knife-edged approach to the universe, they carve a fantastic belief in signs and omens and in their own destiny. This is an origin of their Kralizek legend, The War at the End of the Universe. So I think basically this is just some insight into the development of Fremen religion and how they are simultaneously both a very practical and pragmatic but also superstitious people. Mm -hmm. And that they have this complicated set of legends and mythology but also rules for how it all applies to their like daily lives and this like moralizing that they mention here. So they respond to the instability of all things, as they say, with kind of regimented, defined belief systems and structures, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then we just, we don't actually get any elaboration on, but another mention of this, Kralizek, the war at the end of the universe. Right, which I guess is their apocalypse or rapture or what have you. Ragnarok. Ragnarok, <laughs> yeah. 
a concept familiar to many religions and cultures. Yeah. All right, so in the chapter itself, we start off with Namri informing Gurney that Leto is in a safe place, and then he can report this back to his friends. Gurney, of course, asks exactly where Leto is. Frustrated by feeling like he can't do anything about Namri's evasiveness because he is restricted by Jessica's orders, which he doesn't think make much sense. As it turns out, there's a reason for that, which we'll get to by the chapter's end. However, he does believe in Jessica's supposed warning about the consequences of Leto not mastering his memories, which is the underlying reason for forcing him to undergo all the spice stuff. Namri basically shrugs and says he can't tell Gurney anything else, but that he has found out about Leto's whereabouts through a distrans message, and that Sabiha is with Leto. Gurney protests that she'll just let him escape again, clearly unaware or unconcerned that she's basically a slave now, but Namri isn't worried about it. So the fact that Namri is so nonchalant about this did make me wonder whether sending Sabiha to Shulak was like a ruse to put her in place to keep an eye on Leto, but it, it doesn't really track with anything else, I don't think because she doesn't seem to be aware of that, if that's the case. Marie's certainly didn't seem to be in on it, and I don't think they would have known to send her to Shulak because there's no indication that Leto was going to go there. Mm-hmm. So I think he's just a heartless bastard. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. But he certainly seems happy enough to take advantage of the coincidence that Sabiha is there with Leto to get reports back on his whereabouts and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Either way, Namri doesn't seem very worried about Leto escaping again. Gurney asks whether Namri will have Leto killed, but Namri informs him that it's no longer up to him, so it's up to the people in Shulak, I guess. Gurney wonders how far a distrans bat can travel on this hellhole planet, as he says, and he demands to see Leto himself, but Namri says that he isn't allowed to. Gurney asks why, again frustrated at how little information Namri and the other smugglers in the siege seem willing to share with him. So he's... Theoretically in an alliance with them, but they don't seem to actually be working particularly well together. Namri says that some of the others in the siege, in fact, believe that Gurney has seen too much simply by seeing the siege, and Gurney recognizes the threat in his voice, subtly assuming a fight-ready stance and wishing that he could have a shield, although of course that wouldn't be a good idea in the desert. Right. I think also the sand would just, like, break down the mechanisms eventually. Gurney and Namri argue a bit, about exactly what the plan regarding Leto entails, particularly regarding what would have happened if Namri had had to kill Leto. Gurney is frustrated by his orders from Jessica, momentarily wondering whether trusting the Benny Gesserit was a good idea, before mentally berating himself for his disloyalty to Jessica, who was, of course, not just any Benny Gesserit to him. He gives her the benefit of the doubt regarding the fact that her plans might have to change, but ultimately he trusts her as a friend and a supporter. So he's, like, annoyed at her orders... But he also recognizes that even she can't plan for every possible contingency, and he ultimately trusts in her direction. Mm-hmm. Rooney points out that Namri was only supposed to have to kill Leto if he showed signs of abomination, and Namri sort of gloats that your lady had left it up to Namri to decide, as the Fremen had tests for such things, apparently. Namri dismisses Gurney as not understanding the words and motives of such a reverend mother, who among the Fremen often must send their sons to die. Gurney quietly asks if this means that Leto has been killed, but Namri tells him that Leto does yet live, is in a safe place, and will continue to be given the spice. Gurney points out that he is supposed to escort Leto back to his grandmother if he makes it through the spice test alive, but Namri just kind of shrugs. Gurney is frustrated, since he can't very well go back to Jessica empty-handed like that and be like, well, I don't know where Leto is. 
<laughs> but they've assured me he's fine. Namri doesn't understand why Gurney cares so much about Leto's fate, apparently believing that he is just in this for the money, like many Fremen believe of all foreigners. So, kind of classic xenophobia, I guess, or nationalism, where you just kind of think that your people are the only ones with noble intentions, and that all the foreigners are just morally lesser. Yeah, I guess. Which, I mean, I guess tracks, since this particular group of Fremen thinks that anyone who's not one of them is totally fine to murder and steal their water, so they Mm -hmm. definitely have a bit of a superiority complex. Yeah. Regarding everyone who's not them. However, in addition to all of this verbal sparring, Gurney starts to figure out that something else is going on. A faint within a faint within a faint, as he puts it. Gurney then decides to insult Namri and threaten that Jessica will be angry and will send forces against the siege, which makes Namri blow up, curse at Gurney, and tell him that he'll be glad to take his water for the noble people, basically revealing himself as a member of the murder cult, which I think we could have surmised from the previous chapter, but Gurney maybe didn't know. I also don't know if Gurney knows about the murder cult. Mm-hmm. Unclear what exactly Gurney knows. In response to this outburst, Gurney puts his hand to his knife and prepares his left sleeve, having a literal trick hidden up there, telling Namri that he sees no water spilled here, basically taunting him. Namri retorts that Gurney is only still alive because Namri wanted to basically crush his spirit first by telling him that no troops will be sent by the Lady Jessica, who was a prisoner on Seleucus Secundus, and that Gurney's orders have actually been coming from Aaliyah, although for how long it's not quite clear. Gurney struggles to keep his composure, starting to make a reply about Aaliyah before being cut off by an enraged Namri, who doesn't seem to think that Gurney is fit to speak Aaliyah's name. He scornfully demands to know what Gurney knows of the womb of heaven, one of Aaliyah's honorifics, I guess. Identifies himself as her servant, calls Gurney a male whore, and attacks him. (laughs) I guess we maybe shouldn't be super surprised by this turn, since Namri is Javid's father. Mm -hmm. So, I guess Javid and his family are actually true blue Aaliyah supporters, or is Javid still a double agent for the Carinos, but Namri is a true believer? And how does this all fit in with the affiliation with the murder cult? Are they supporters of Aaliyah because they think she's, you know, literally part of the Messiah family because she's Paul's sister? But how does that fit in with Shulok sheltering Paul, who is working against Aaliyah? Like, I'm very confused about the web of loyalties going on here. Do you think maybe their plan was to get... Javid to seduce Aaliyah and then try to like get in good with her so they could exert some control over the Empire? I don't know, but it just seems like Namri seems like a true fanatic for Aaliyah, you know? Mm -hmm. Like the way he's talking here doesn't sound like he's cynically supporting her because it would be good for his group. It sounds like he genuinely is worshipful of her, which doesn't seem to fit in with the activities of Shulak who's sort of working with, or at least sheltering Paul. Like, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) Yeah, could also be for show, but I'm not sure why you'd put that show on just for Gurney. Yeah, I don't know. And I guess we'll never know, because shortly Namri will be dead. (laughs) (laughs) So Gurney evades Namri's attack, basically using an extra flap of fabric sewn into his left sleeve to catch Namri's knife and disarm him, while simultaneously sweeping the cloth over Namri's face to blind him, while Gurney stabs him in the face with his own knife. So, of course, knife to the face kills Namri, 
and Gurney wonders why Namri was stupid enough to think that Gurney wouldn't notice that he was wearing body armor beneath his robes and be ready for a fight. <laughs> so, I think maybe Namri's superiority complex about foreigners uh, got the better of him. Yeah, I think you could say that. He underestimated Gurney as just like just an Atreides servant when Gurney is a whole lot more than that. We know Gurney is not just a dude. He is a rolling lump of humanity, and nothing will stop him. <laughs> Gotta watch out for those lumps. Especially the ugliest of them. Of course. Anyway... So Gurney is now wondering how much truth was in Namri's words, although he does feel that he was being truthful about Jessica and Aaliyah's respective statuses. Apparently, Jessica had warned Gurney that Aaliyah might become their enemy, but not that she herself might be taken prisoner, so Gurney was not expecting that particular turn of events. But Gurney still has orders to obey, and regardless of what he ends up doing, the first step is escaping from this place. His escape is not particularly extravagant as he basically just puts up his still suit mask and hood and walks out of the siege looking like just another fremen walking as if nothing is wrong so he doesn't look suspicious he feels free even though he is walking into danger and he resolves to tell jessica that he had never liked her plan for leto if he ever sees her again apparently this is a big if because if namri is telling the truth then gurney has orders to execute the riskiest of all of jessica's contingency plans and if Aaliyah catches gurney he'll be killed Apparently, this plan hinges on Stilgar, and somehow removing the thin veneer of civilized behavior over his original nature, which Jessica has told Gurney how to do. But that's all the detail we get for now, so it's unclear exactly what that refers to. Mm -hmm. They're just going to make Stilgar go into Hulk mode. (laughs) So I guess the question I have here is, at what point did the order start coming from Aaliyah and not Jessica? So I assume that Jessica did set some of this up, mm-hmm. but it was then co-opted by Aaliyah once Jessica was taken out of the picture. Yeah. But I assume the like original plan, because Jessica had worked with Ganema to like do something about Leto. So I do think my understanding is that this was all basically or some of this was Jessica's plan, but I don't know at what point Aaliyah co-opted it. So was Jessica's plan just to, like, get Leto out somewhere and, like, train him, and it's Aaliyah instituted the whole spice thing? Or was the spice thing still part of Jessica's plan and Aaliyah just took advantage of that because she also wanted Leto to have to take spice so that she could utilize his prescient visions? So I think the... I think it was from the beginning... Um, and the reason I think that is because at the beginning of the book, we'll remember that Jessica had taken note of Javid being a potential double agent, which I think he mm-hmm. was basically a triple agent when she tried to use him, not a double agent. I think he, I mean, his loyalties really lie with like the desert Fremen, right? That's my assumption at least. Um, so when I'm assuming he was approached by Jessica or Gurney or someone in Jessica's entourage, um, about, you know, working for them instead he was probably just taking his those orders right back to Aaliyah and running them by her, and they were probably, you know, kind of like playing Jessica the whole time. That's my guess, just because really early on, the seeds were planted that they were going to try to use Javid, and he's like a connection between all of these different people here. Including Carinos, because they also think he's a double agent for them. Yeah, and essentially everyone thinks that he works for them, and they're under the impression that his loyalty is to them, but it isn't, right? The Carinos think that... Javid is their agent. Aaliyah thinks Javid is her agent. 
Jessica thinks that Javid is her agent, but in the end, he's probably just serving the desert from him because that's like his family, right? Yeah, although Namri does seem to be an Aaliyah worshiper, so I don't know if there's not some degree of loyalty to Aaliyah herself. Mm-hmm. But also, I guess my question is also, Jessica must have directly interacted with Gurney at some point about these plans, like before he got sent out. So what did she tell him in person? And like at what point were those like directions changed? It's possible that Jessica's plans were sort of like... Well, I guess they wouldn't have began on Kaladin. She probably had an idea of what she wanted to do at that point and needed more information because she met with the twins and, like, you know, basically interviewed them and figured out what their deal was. So at least at that point, she probably had, like, a solid idea of what she was doing before she went to that, like, great hall meeting that she had where all that shit went down many chapters ago. I'm assuming, like, by the time she went into that, all of the stuff had been kicked into motion. And Gurney had been sent out into the desert already by the time that Ganema and Jessica were plotting, right? Yes. So by that point, any information that Jessica sent to Gurney through Javid or any other intermediaries like that could have been co-opted. I would assume so. Okay. So who the hell knows what Jessica's actual plan was? (laughs) I have no clue. (laughs) Whatever. At any rate, Gurney has not been taking Jessica's orders for quite some time. Right. All right, so the epigraph for our final chapter for today is from the Fadaikin Compact. The spirit of Muad'Dib is more than words, more than the letter of the law which arises in his name. Muad'Dib must always be that inner outrage against the complacently powerful, against the charlatans and the dogmatic fanatics. It is that inner outrage which must have its say because Muad'Dib taught us one thing above all others, that humans can endure only in a fraternity of social justice. So, uh, Fadaikin, social justice warriors. (laughs) Also, I feel like it's interesting to say that Muad'Dib must be the inner outrage against blah blah blah, the dogmatic fanatics, because I feel like the Fadaikin are the dogmatic fanatics. (laughs) Right? They're like the uber-loyal Muad'Dib... Warriors. They yeah, are that the is fanatics. True. <laughs> I think it also depends on what lens you're looking at it through, what time period, because early on, like book one, I mean, they were definitely the people who were like trying to overthrow imperialism, right? But things changed over time. You had the jihad and you had all the fallout from that. Now you have Aaliyah and the, you know, the murder cult. So things change over time, but at least when it started, that was kind of the spirit of Muad'Dib, right? It was trying to overthrow the Harkonnens and the Empire and allow the um, Fremen to exist, basically, on their own terms. Yeah. I don't know that we could say that the Fremen uh, or the Fedeikin particularly really adhered to any pursuit of social justice beyond (laughs) that. Yeah, not beyond that, certainly. Unless you consider sending your niece off to a slave camp to be social justice well I just mean the jihad generally I feel like it would be very difficult Mm -hmm. to frame as social justice in any way and that was largely led by the Fedaikin I believe I mean maybe their own version of it but right not by our standards today certainly not alright so in the chapter itself we pick up with Lado sitting in the crude hut watching Sabiha make spiced coffee and gruel similar to his vision that he had of her making spiced coffee potentially the same vision or the coming true of that vision. Mm-hmm. Leto considers the contradiction of the people of Shulok, 
who eschew modern glow globes and keep slaves like the ancient Fremen, but fly thopters and use modern spice harvesters. As I mentioned previously, it seems kind of like they hew to tradition when it helps them to oppress people, but are fine with modernity when it benefits the people in power. Hmm. My favorite group in this book. At least Aaliyah has the excuse of being literally possessed by an evil person. <laughs> Fair point. Later refuses to eat the spice gruel that Sabiha has made for him, although she pleads that she will be punished if he does not. Leto considers his options to try to break various threads of the future, including killing Sabiha right now, or telling her of Miriza's plans. Apparently, waiting here for Paul to return is not one of his options, because it will solidify one particular future that Leto doesn't seem to want to come true. Trying to decide which future to pursue, he finds it difficult to resist the sweeter ones, including at least one of his possible futures with Sabiha, which is so alluring that it threatens to block out all other options. Sabiha asks why he's staring at her so weirdly. He doesn't reply, now trying to overcome the suddenly powerful urge to kill her and shatter those futures and their temptations. Unaware of how close she is to death, she tells him that Muriz has commanded that he eat this spice gruel. Leto condescendingly thinks of Muriz as a superstitious old fool wishing for his pet oracle to prophesize for him. We learn that Muriz has taken Leto's still suit, in an attempt to ensure that he won't escape from Shulak as easily as he had from Jakarutu. Apparently, Muris is also seeking for Leto to give some kind of insult that would allow him to threaten Leto with death, as having been forced to drink Leto's blood and therefore sharing the same spirit river precludes him from doing so at the moment, unless Leto kind of breaks that contract. Sabiha tries to cajole Leto, saying that the spice will give him visions, but they're no big deal. She's had visions during the spice orgy before, but they don't mean anything. This, in combination with some remembered Bene Gesserit teachings, causes a flash of illumination within Leto, about Sabiha, and by extension the Fremen at large. They, similar to but even more so than all humans, are vision makers in their own right, as Leto thinks, having some minor capacity for prescience but they disdain the visions that they see in their spice orgies because they are unsettling and upsetting, and they can't handle the consequences of them. I think part of this is also that Leto is so much more powerful in terms of experience and ability that he isn't really able to properly empathize with normal human beings with their more limited capabilities here. Mm -hmm. So he goes quite quickly from pining over a future with Sabiha that he can't have an entire lifetime full of their love to being pretty scornful of her as an avatar of humankind generally. Like, the transition is, like, very quick. Right. From, I could spend a lifetime with you to, like, you pathetic little creature. Yeah, and I mean, it totally makes sense. He's lived his whole life with all these additional memories in his brain. Definitely changes your lens on life. Well, and I think he's also now, in, to some degree, lived his own life multiple times in different futures. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And seen, like, the general future of mankind, so... He kind of, like, oscillates from his own personal desires and experiences as, like, as a person to this, like, godlike figure looking down on humanity. <laughs> in contrast to Sabiha and... The other Fremen being disdainful of their own minor Prussian abilities, Leto considers his own power to see all dimensions and make the terrible decisions required by that, as his father had, to some degree. Sibiha again pleads for him to just eat the damn gruel, but Leto has now been able to put all of his visions together and see the particular thread that he must follow, 
once again thinking my skin is not my own, and we'll finally learn what that means very shortly. Where I once thought that this was just a reference to his experience of other people's memories, of, like, living through other people's memories in, like, their bodies not being his own, it, we're about to find out that it's much more literal than that. Mm-hmm. So Leto gets up and tells Sabiha that he's going outside, although she warns him that he's not going to be able to escape. If he passes the boundaries of the Kanat in their canyon, the captive worm there will eat him. Anyway, he has no still suit, unlike last time. They argue about his eating the spice gruel, and he basically tells her he's so saturated with spice that all of his existence is a vision now, while she pleads that the others are watching and they'll know if he doesn't eat the gruel. Leto is now in full scorn mode, shedding her from his visions, feeling new freedom envelop him, thinking of her as nothing but a poor pawn who still hopes to share in the successes of Shulok and Jakarutu. Although, I'm not sure how true that last point is, given that they've enslaved her and could kill her at any time, so I feel like she's probably not expecting to profit from their successes too much. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, quite a turnaround for Leto from a few moments ago when he was thinking about how tempting a lifetime with her would be. She gets up to go with him, clearly concerned about him escaping her again, despite the obvious obstacles in his path, which Leto seems to attribute to some unconscious attention to her own latent visions, although, of course, she consciously knows there's no logical way for him to get out, as she's explained to him. Either way, he tells her that he needs to be alone. She asks where he will go, and he truthfully answers that he is going down to the Kanat. She warns him of the sand trout swarms that come out at night, and that the worm sometimes comes down to the edge of the water. And it makes you wonder, how long could she possibly have been here to know this? Like, again, Leto escaped like a day and a half ago. Yeah, and she just got here. Unless she's I, been here before. Maybe. I guess that's possible. But I was a little bit confused by this point. I was like, how much time has passed? Maybe Leto was sleeping during that storm for like a week. <laughs> but Leto says that he'll be fine, and he couldn't use the worm to get away anyway, since he doesn't have maker hooks. She asks whether he will eat when he returns, and he subtly uses a voice on her to imply that he will, and kind of quiet her protestations. She warns that Muriz will come down to see if Leto has had a vision, but he says that he will deal with Muriz, apparently still voicing her to kind of make her sleepy. Like, not pass out, but, I guess, be less likely to argue back with him. Mm -hmm. He leaves the tent and goes down to the Kanat, considering how the small worms trapped here will never survive off of Arrakis, because all other planets would have deserts that were too moist. Even now, the deserts in Arrakis are becoming less dry with each passing day, which will eventually kill off the worms. Leto hears the Biha moving restlessly in the tent behind him, again believing it to be the result of latent visions making her uneasy about what's going to happen. He thinks about how nice it would be to just live a normal life with her, with no visions and no knowledge of the future, a wild existence of facing each new day as it came. As he is musing, almost without realizing it, Leto is surrounded by sand trout. As a Fremen, he knows that they can be attracted by small amounts of water, and that you can squeeze some kind of energy-rich syrup out of them if you catch them and beat them against the sand, forcing them to roll up into a tube, which can be the last hope of someone dying of thirst in the desert. But Fremen children apparently also play a game with the creatures, catching them and sticking them to their hands like a sort of living glove. The sand trout will eventually fall off to be collected in a spice basket, which keeps the sand trout quiescent until they can be harvested in the death stills. The sand trout here don't seem to be very smart, because they keep crawling over the sand to the water of the Kanat, only to be immediately eaten by the fish in it, which prevents them from blocking off the Kanat like they would normally do when they encounter water. Mm -hmm. 
kind of just like the classic, and I know it's not true, lemmings running off a cliff. Right. But they're just like going to the edge of the water, falling in the water, and immediately being eaten. <laughs> so Leto picks up one of the sand trout and puts it on his hand, like the Fremen children do. The sand trout are large, diamond-shaped creatures with no apparent head or eyes or anything, but they are able to form a large interlocking structure with their brethren once they find water, thereby protecting any sandworms in the vicinity from the poison of the water. Presumably some, although not all, sand trout eventually become sandworms, although I don't really know how that happens. Well, definitely by not getting eaten by fish. Yeah, that probably uh, puts an end to that possibility for those particular sand trout. As he has seen in his visions, the sand trout stretches over his hand, getting thinner and covering more of his hand than it usually would, attracted by the incredibly high saturation of spice in his blood. So it's basically, like, sticking to and trying to, like, spread itself out over his hand far more than it would when a frown child plays with it, for example. Mm -hmm. Leto manipulates his metabolism and body chemistry carefully to control this process, using the knowledge from his other memories and spice trance. It's quite dangerous because if he fucks up even a little, he'll OD, presumably on spice, and just die here instead of completing his transformation. He adds another sandworm higher up his arm, which does the same thing as the first one, spreading out over his skin and interlocking itself with the first one, and he continues this process until he is completely covered in the creatures except for his face. He describes this as basically turning the sand trout into a skin symbiote, as he is somehow able to integrate his senses with theirs and feel each grain of sand around him as if it was on his own unencumbered skin. Doing this properly is extremely risky and extremely difficult, but apparently the only way to achieve the golden path. One of the sand trout tries to cover his face, but he forces it to roll up into a border around the edge of his face, which he then also bites to drink the syrup contained within, which is still weird. Yeah. Like, is it their blood? Like, what, what is this? It seems like it basically is. It's whatever the fluid is that's inside of their bodies. Which I guess would be the equivalent of blood, right? Gross. Whatever it is. It is. I mean, they're basically like giant gushers, right? Ugh. Ew. (laughs) Ew. Gross. I don't want to think about that. But yeah, basically, I guess. Anyway, so now that the process is complete, Leto gets up to test whether his vision accurately provided him with the true consequences of this transformation... And it seems from his initial experimentation that it was all true. Somehow the sand trout skin makes him stronger, and he initially finds it quite difficult to compensate for how much faster and more powerfully he moves now. But he uses his Bene Gesserit training to figure it out and master control of his body. He reflects that now, truly, his skin is not his own. Although his muscles still are, and they are protesting quite a bit at all of this sudden uh, exertion. So it seems like... I don't really know how this works, but that the sand trout are kind of like a biological exoskeleton. Like, not like an insect exoskeleton, but like, you know, like mechanical exoskeletons Mm -hmm. that people have designed to help people like lift more things or whatever. I know they're still like fairly prototypical, but it seems like this is accomplishing the same thing where it's somehow this like external thing that is making him able to physically do more than his normal body could by itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've seen it in science fiction all over the place. These it's like an Iron Man suit, except yeah. sand trout. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a good example. <laughs> kind of weird. I don't quite get how it's providing him with all of these capabilities. Mm-hmm. But 
somehow it is. Eventually, Leto gets down on his stomach and basically swims through the sand, which is apparently another new ability granted to him by the sand trout suit. This brings him past the Kanat and into the canyon with the worm, which moves toward him, attracted by the vibrations of his movement. This is an even bigger test than his new physical capabilities, and he is counting on his vision being true here or he's about to get eaten. The worm rises up in front of him, its giant jaws opening right in front of where he is standing, and he has to fight the deep and instinctual urge to flee from this danger. But he is fascinated and does not move, being closer to the mouth of a living worm than anyone ever has, at least anyone who managed to survive the experience. But the worm does nothing. It reads him as nothing more than a sand trout, and it has no instinct to attack its own immature vector form, which can so often be found encapsulating the toxic water on this planet, so it's probably in the sandworm's best interest to avoid the sand trout surrounding the water, right? Right. It even retreats from Leto as he waves his arm toward its mouth. He turns his back on the worm and heads back towards the cannot with the worm motionless behind him. Crossing the cannot again, Leto leaps in joy at his success and newfound abilities, drawing Sabiha out of the tent to stare in shock. He jumps back across the cannot again, calls back to her that the worm does his bidding, and then uses his new sand trout strength to sprint around the worm and race across the canyon, before jumping a full 15 feet in the air up the cliff face and crawling out of the canyon like an insect crawling over the rocks. Looking out at the desert before him, his exhilaration fades and he considers what to do now. He notes that the sand trout suit absorbs his sweat even faster than a still suit would have, and he takes a drink of sand trout juice, apparently to replenish his lost water, wondering how to handle the desert without the mask of a still suit. Of course, the obvious answer is that he just unrolls one of the sand trout up over his mouth and just stops it from rolling over his nose, which allows him to breathe in through his nose and out through his mouth as a Fremen would normally do in the desert with a still suit. Leto sees a thopter land nearby and hears an outcry in the siege behind him, presumably the alarm having been raised that he's escaped, and two men get out of the thopter and approach him with weapons drawn. Leto sadly thinks about how he is committed to the golden path now, and that what he has created is incredibly valuable, but has come at the cost of his humanity, as he is no longer fully human anymore. And one day, this night of his transformation will become so much the stuff of legend that it will no longer even be recognizable as the truth although people will believe it to be. Leto jumps down the other side of the cliff face into the desert proper, 30 to 40 meters at a time, leaping from rock face to rock face with his newfound strength. He again finds joy in his new abilities, in his defiance of the Tanzeroft. He then dives fully into a dune, able to basically propel himself through it, although when he moves too quickly, the temperature gets too hot to bear. When he emerges, he notices that the sand trout membrane had covered his nostrils while burrowing, presumably to protect him from, like, breathing in sand, and he rolls it back. His suit absorbs his sweat, and he drinks from the sand trout near his mouth again. He has incredibly already come 15 kilometers, which is a bit more than nine miles for us silly Americans and our distaste for <laughs> the metric system and its logic. He sees thopters sweeping across the desert behind him, so he waits until nearly dawn when the searchers seem to have given up looking for him. He is now irrevocably committed to his path, Ahead lay the trap in time and space, which had been prepared as an unforgettable lesson for himself and all of mankind, which doesn't make sense to us now, but hopefully will be illuminated by the end of the book. Mm -hmm. 
we're very close to the end now and still have no clue what the golden path is. Yeah. <laughs> There's been a lot of things contributing to it. But there's this, like, I have no indication of what it means. Right. Other than that, like, it might be bad, but ultimately necessary or something? I don't know. Anyway, Leto turns to the northeast and casually travels another 50 kilometers before burrowing himself into the sand to rest for the day, using a tiny tube of sand trout membrane to make a breathing apparatus. He shudders as he thinks about how he and the trout are adapting to live with each other. So this seems to be a potentially semi-permanent installation. Mm-hmm. He thinks about his plans, which involve raiding various settlements to smash their canots and release their water back into the sand, apparently setting back Arrakis's ecological transformation by a full generation, which will give Leto and his allies time to develop a new timetable. And, of course, the wild desert famine will be blamed, which will have the helpful side effect of potentially reminding people of the existence of the lost siege of Jakarutu, the water stealers, which will apparently cause issues for Aaliyah. Presumably she benefits from the fact that they're secret. Mm-hmm. Leto wistfully thinks of his sister, mouthing the words that will restore her lost memories of the truth, but knows that they cannot be reunited until later if they survive at all. The golden path awaits him now, somehow vital to the survival and progress of humanity, although we, as just mentioned, still don't know what it is. Interestingly, Leto thinks that soon he and his father will have a dispute man-to-man and only one vision will emerge. So I suppose there's still hope that Leto will get to chat with his dear old dad after all, which I had been a bit frustrated to have snatched away when he left Shulak so shortly after arriving. So we don't have much left. I think you said about 12 chapters. Mm -hmm. So uh, gotta happen soon. Yes. We're in the endgame now. Indeed we are. Um, What did you think of this chapter? Well, it's nice to have answers to the whole terrible glove and skin that is not my own thing. Mm -hmm. I can't say I anticipated making a suit out of sand trout. (laughs) You weren't expecting this to be like a superhero origin story. No, not exactly. And I also... Oof, what a weird and gross superpower. (laughs) (laughs) Like, at least, like an Iron Man suit you can, like, put on, or, like, Batman armor you can just put on, presumably over, like, some degree of underclothing, whereas mm-hmm. Leto just, like, gets naked in the sand and lets these fucking weird, thi- like, leech things stick to his body. Yeah. Kind of gross. <laughs> Pretty nasty. I feel like I'd rather get bitten by the radioactive spider, despite my extreme distaste for spiders. Mm-hmm. But altogether, fascinating, regardless. Yeah, pretty interesting. I don't really know how the sandworm skin suit gives him all of these powers, but, like, sure, let's roll with it. Mm -hmm. Certainly interesting. Um, And what he's going to do with them and the, like, long-term consequences. Like, can he take this off whenever he wants to? Is it, like, merging with him? Mm -hmm. Because he was, like, it was difficult for him to do in the first place, so, like, I don't know how easy it would be for him to, like, to take off and put on at will. Based on his comments about no longer being fully human, Yeah, that kind of seems like this is just, like, his life now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was a certain finality to that statement. Huh. Raises some some questions. <laughs> like, can he have children with this thing on? <laughs> Good question. Like, I don't know. Can he take it off to use the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> well, if it works like a still suit, I mean, Ugh. I'm assuming it's just going to those unfortunate like sand trout. <laughs> I know. And unfortunate Leto, because, I mean, they're just going to recycle his waste, right? 
They've been doing that with his sweat. Yeah. So. I wouldn't want to be the sand trap near his butt. (laughs) (laughs) Neither would I. Anyway. And on that lovely thought. (laughs) Any other thoughts on the chapter? I'm surprised he was at Shulok so short of a time. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, these sieges could have been the same place. I don't really understand why yeah, they were the different. Yeah, the story was kind of drawn out. His time at Jakarutu was a little bit too long for my taste. I feel like they just could have merged those, and they could have all been one place, because they were working together anyway. There could yeah. have just been, like, a different section of the siege that Gurney didn't know about or something, where, like, the death cult stuff happened. Like, mm-hmm. there's definitely a way that this could have been streamlined a bit, I think. Yeah, I agree, too. Um, and, like, yeah, he shows up here. I guess he had to go to Shulak because that's the only place where there would have been a sufficient concentration of sand trout? Or did he know that? Like, Not sure. I still don't know how much he, like, saw and when and all of that. And mm-hmm. it, like, even in this chapter, he's like, oh, well, like, I could do this or I could do this. And he's, like, weighing options before, like, finally committing to the Golden Path. But I thought he'd been committed to the Golden Path, like, when he set out into the desert after the tiger attack. So <laughs> I don't know why he keeps, like, being like, now I'm committed to the Golden Path. <laughs> like, I thought we decided this a while ago, dude. <laughs> well, I think he's been, like, himself committed to it, but I think now he's physically committed to it, right? <sighs> I also don't know what his plan was before getting captured. Like, obviously he set out into the desert to find Jakarutu, but, like, what was he expecting to find there? Like, he didn't seem to expect being captured by Gurney and Namri and all them, so what mm-hmm. what did he expect to happen? I'm not sure, but they fed him tons of spice, and that really unlocked a lot of stuff. So yeah, maybe that was part of the that? plan. But I, but he was not avoiding sure. spice because he didn't want to fall into the prescience trap. I don't know. He was avoiding it, but maybe it was a necessary evil. But did he know it was going to happen? Is my question. Not like, sure. what what was his goal in setting out for Jakarutu before he was captured? Like, I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like we don't know what everyone's initial plans were before they got co opted by Aaliyah and or the Desert Fremen. Right. Well, anyway, looking forward to the next couple chapters, hopefully getting all of these factions kind of coming together in some intense confrontations. We've got Leto and Paul, sound like they've got to have a meeting, Ganema and Faradin, wonder how that's going to go, the clash between Aaliyah and the Desert Fremen and the Carinos and the Atreides, and just how is all that going to shake out? Not much uh, in the way of chapters left. Right, it's got to happen pretty quick. we got 12 chapters left. So about four episodes, probably? Yep. All right, cool. And there is going to be some interesting stuff happening in the next episode. Cool. I look forward to it. I mean, this one was certainly interesting. I would mm-hmm. characterize it. <laughs> yep. The introduction of the little-known superhero, Sandtrap Boy. <laughs> certainly could be described as interesting. <laughs> All right, anything else? Um, nope, I think that'll be it. Okay, cool. Till next time, I'm Alex. I'm Elaine. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Pod Emperor of Dune. If you enjoyed listening to us, we'd appreciate a review on your podcasting host of choice. And be sure to let your friends know about us. You can find us on Twitter under the handle NerdIsayMore, or send us an email at NerdIsayMore at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us further, please go to patreon.com forward slash NerdIsayMore, where you can also get access to exclusive content.